It's awesome to have you back. You're already laughing at my jokes before I've even told them. Thank you. This is going to be a good day. I did bring some toys with me. By the way, my name is Jeremy. If it's uh, that early in the morning, probably you remember it. Maybe you don't. I don't know. But I'm glad to be here. I hope you are too. And I've got some cool stuff to show you today. So I'm just going to jump in and we're uh, having communion today. So we're going to use every second. So that's your introduction. All right. I'm pretty. Ooh, wow. Someone actually asked me this morning, they said, is that yours? It's like, yeah, now it is. This is a new phase in life for me. This is not mine. This I actually got from a local district, or I don't know if it's a district or circuit judge. I don't even know which one I got it from, but it's a real live judge nonetheless. You hope he's alive, right? All right. There we go. Very good. I'm about to get these out faster next service. We'll see. All right. So here are my toys that I brought to play with today, a various sundry and assortment. And the reason for doing so is that as I look at James chapter 5, verses 7 through 11, what you will see is that there are a number of key terms in there much like any text, but in particular to this one, there's all kinds of uh, key or significant words. And what ends up happening is um, a lot of times I want to know more, and so I'll chase these terms down throughout other places in Scripture. And what I found was in nearly every eschatological or end times or last days or futuristic passage, you find these same sort of concepts, if not even the exact words, showing up. And I'm not going to have time to chase down every single word today and say, hey, look, here it is in this passage, and here it is in this one, and here it is in this one. So what I thought I'd do is just bring out these toys and um, tell you which word they represent. And then today, as we go through the sermon, I may occasionally hold one up or something like that just to remind you, oh, there it is again, there it is again, there it is again. So let me show you some of these, and to tell you the truth, most of my illustrations, I ask for permission before I, you know, involve them. Uh, some of these I did not ask for permission for, so shh, nobody knows that these are here today. I tried a little bit yesterday, I tested the waters, but there's a bit of resistance, so these kind of <laughs> magically disappeared, and they will magically show up later this afternoon. But if you don't know what this is, this is uh, the physician's... Uh, bag that belongs to Doc McStuffins. Exactly right. She has all kinds of accessories in here because she's a very good doctor. So she has stethoscopes, blood pressure cuffs, you know, thermometers, shots, everything you need to be a great physician. And as a great physician, you can imagine that she is in high demand and therefore she has lots of Patient, exactly right. Okay, so what do you think this one represents? Patience, there you go. I know it's a bit different, it's a bit of a stretch, but that's the best I can do, all right? Here is another one. This is a Disney castle. I'm not sure if it's Dora or somebody else, but it's pink, it's Rufu, it's a castle. Today, uh, you're going to come into a Greek word by the name of parousia, which, don't worry, is a very actual simple term. Para means with and Usia is a Greek word for being, so it means being with 
or like together. What's interesting is, is every time throughout scripture where you see the coming of Jesus, you have this word parousia. And so theologians and pastors and others will call it the coming kingdom, the coming. And so I'm using a castle today to represent that coming kingdom. But the interesting thing is a lot of times it doesn't even use the word kingdom. It's just the parousia or the being with. In other words, the kingdom of God is his presence with you. The greatest thing he has to give you is himself. And that's why you can in some ways say it's an already not yet. Because you have him in your hearts, although you don't have him physically with you. So the kingdom hasn't been fully realized, but it is growing and moving and taking over the world. So here is the kingdom represented by Dora or whoever. You'll find that in today's text. You'll also find a lot of stuff about fruit or a harvest or things like this. So this is your uh, broken cornucopia that will sit like this for the rest of the service. So there's fruit harvest, etc. In eschatological or in time literature, you always hear about the return of Christ. Then inevitably, with the return of the king, you also hear that there will be a, a judgment. Exactly right. There's always a judgment. And when the king comes back, the thing he is judging is your heart. Exactly right. Now, this is, of course, a heart surgery pillow. And I will not tell you from whom I borrowed it, but let me tell you, she is a jewel of a person. So anyways, this is a heart surgery pillow. And what I want you to remember is that in each of these passages, whether it's in Second Peter, whether it's in Jude, whether it's in Revelation, whether it's in First John, you're inevitably going to run into terms like this. You're going to hear about a coming or a kingdom. You're going to hear about a future harvest and fruitfulness. Oh, and I forgot one. You're going to hear about a, uh, the concept of being patient. And thus, in today's text, um, uh, James will talk about using uh, the analogy of a farmer. So this is your barn which represents the patience of a farmer. And the reason for that is this, is look, what's happening in James is the people are suffering. They're enduring trials and tribulations. And at this point, there's this economic, they're being oppressed by their rich landlords and owners and things like that. But later, there will also be physical persecution as well. And so anytime these New Testament letters are being written to these people, whether it's a church in Laodicea or the, you know, People that are listening to Peter or whoever, he's saying, hey, you're being persecuted by Nero or Roman emperors or whatever. You're being um, tortured. You're being imprisoned. You're being punished. But hang on. Be patient because of the coming kingdom, at which time there will be a harvest and the Lord God will... Exactly right. Now, if you follow that, you will watch that through nearly every eschatological or end time passage. So these are some of the key words, and I think we have a slide if you want to write them down. These are the key words that are showing up in today's text, but also in nearly every other end time text as well. It'll call you to patience, and it'll say the reason you should be patient is why? Well, because the king is coming. And there will be a harvest. There will be a future judgment where the righteous will be vindicated and God will judge your heart and he'll make it right. And the wicked will be punished. 
This is what you see today in James chapter 5, verses 7 through 11. So if you have your Bibles, you're welcome to follow along. If not, uh, we'll have it up on the screen for you. And you can also follow along in our blue Bibles in the back. So this is James chapter 5, verses 7 through 11. It says this, Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it, until it receives the early and late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purposes of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. As I think about this passage, I imagine there are several common objections to it. And one of which is this, is if you're a church person or whatever, you probably assume somewhat the sovereignty of God, meaning that God's power and his oversight over everything. And yet what we always struggle with is this strange interplay between the sovereignty of God and what we call the free will of humanity. We're like, how does that work? And a lot of times, either depending on your experiences or your personality or your fears or your securities or whatever, you lean one way or the other. And we like to go back and forth philosophically, oh, well, what about this? And what about this? And what about that? And what I find is, I think, with a lot of people who affirm the sovereignty of God, is what they will say is something like, in the big picture, we affirm that in the end, everything's going to work out. We got that. Yeah, we believe in God in the future, everything's going to be okay. But where the rub is, or where the rubber meets the road, is when it comes to my life. Because I know that I have a strange propensity to mess things up. <laughs> you know, I know God is perfect, and he's got the future all under control, but as far as it goes, there's me and now, and it doesn't always work out quite right. Well, what if I make a mistake, and what if I mess things up, and how is it going to turn out in my parenting? If I blow it with these kids, am I going to ruin them for life, or my marriage, or my relationship, my job, my finances, my... And we go down this spiral. We think about all the mistakes we can make, and indeed, there are a lot. And we come to this, whether we realize it or not, theological and philosophical position that is somewhat like deism. Which means basically we think God is this, you know, cosmic watchmaker who wound up this whole thing and then stepped back and said, okay, hands off. I'm good. I made it. I started, I began, but now it's kind of on you. So good luck. Here you go. I'm, I'm done. I've done my part. Now it's on you. And we feel all this pressure in this way. Like, oh man, am I doing the right thing? Did I blow it? Have I taken a wrong turn and permanently destroyed my life? What will be? Carolyn James, in her book, When Life and Beliefs Collide, How Knowing God Makes a Difference, has a beautiful quote. Um, I don't have it on the screen, so just listen carefully. This is how it goes. She says, those who believe that God has a plan for them sometimes encounter another problem, the conviction that they have lost God's plan for them. 
They believe that they have missed or fallen off the plan. Or that something has happened to destroy it. And we know the feeling. Somewhere along the line, that zigzag, we zigged when we should have zagged. And now we're hopelessly stuck with plan B. It only takes one foolish youthful decision or a missed opportunity and the interference of someone else in our lives or sinfulness and plan A is gone forever. No, what do we do? But if, just if, God is sovereign, then according to Mrs. James, hmm, that fits well with today's service, there is no plan B. Plan B is a myth. And no matter how dark things look to us or how big the mess we're in, you're actually in plan A. God's plan for you is intact, proceeding exactly as he intended, neither behind nor ahead, but instead right on schedule. Nothing, not even your sins, failures, disappointments, bad decisions, nor the sins of other people can deter a sovereign, omnipotent, all-powerful God from accomplishing his purpose. Thus the life of Job. And I think you'll hear that word purpose come up again today. Said another way, let me put it in what biblical authors would call parallelism. I'm going to juxtapose two different statements and sort of contrast them and that should draw it out for you. Many times in our way of thinking, we think today determines tomorrow. What you do today determines the outcome of tomorrow. However, I say to you that the Bible, although it acknowledges the reality and consequences of your actions and assumes you take responsibility, even then, it still says that tomorrow determines today. Not the other way. It is not today that determines tomorrow, but tomorrow that determines today. In other words, the future determines the present, not the other way around. How could I say that? Well, look at James chapter 5, verse 8. It says this, what do we do now? How then should I live? Right now, how does this impact me? It says, be patient. Establish your hearts. Why? Here's the key hinge. For, because, therefore, explanatory gar. This is the reason that this affects you right now. For the coming of the Lord is at hand. In other words, here's the theme for today. T tomorrow determines today. It is not that today determines tomorrow, but in fact, tomorrow determines what you do today. Now, James knows this is a difficult pill to swallow, so he's going to give you three different examples to walk through this text. Very, very uh, homogenous, but different homogenous uh, experience or outcome, but a different Scenario. So, for example, he's going to say there's a farmer, and you'll see how the farmer thinks about tomorrow, and therefore he plans for tomorrow. And what he wants as an outcome tomorrow determines what he does today. Then there's also the prophets, and what they experience is mostly misery and pain and suffering, neglect, persecution, and abuse at the hands of sinners. But they know that tomorrow is better than today, so they do what they do today because of tomorrow. And so too with, of course, the ultimate example of faithful suffering, Job, who is not looking at his present circumstances, but instead looking to the purposes of the Lord. So all three of these examples uh, are in this text. I won't have time to go through everything this morning, but I will direct you to uh, where you can find it. So let's start with the first then. 
the farmer. When I first began pastoring, I was fresh out of seminary, green around the collar, and uh, going out to the first church who would take me, which kind of narrows as a young guy coming fresh out. How much experience? Well, uh, uh, <laughs> I volunteered. <laughs> um, so I'd go out, like many young preachers do, to these little tiny churches out in the middle of nowhere that can't do any better, and there you go, and, and you start, and you start preaching, and you learn, and they learn, and you work together, and this was a beautiful community of agrarian people. They were farmers, and we were talking about faith with one of my friends one day, and I listened to him describe his life, because farmers, the guys I was around at least, they don't talk a whole lot, you know? <laughs> you don't get them up on stage to share their testimony or pray or nothing like that. They're like, you know, I'm good out in the field, inside a building, not so sure. <laughs> but you get these guys in a, in a comfortable spot, and all of a sudden he's telling you how he lives by faith. And let me tell you, that guy lives by faith. Because even with, you know, $300,000 combines, GPS systems, flyover, you know, sprays, and everything else that measures the exact, you know, seed per millimeter and rope or whatever, they still are dependent on God to produce their crop. I mean, they do all kinds of fancy stuff. And you get in one of these new combines, and you're like, wow, I'm in a spaceship. They're amazing. But at the same time, the guy's like, it's August. Harvest is in September. Right now is a perfect germination period for these seeds. And if these little corn things don't turn around just right with the right amount of humidity and the right amount of moisture and not too much and not too little, I'm dead. <laughs> Every year, I have to take out a monster loan in order to get enough capital to plant my crops that at the end of the year, if this doesn't come through, we're in big trouble. And if it does, we're doing fine. And if not, we're in big trouble. And here he is just explaining to me how he lives every day by faith. And it's August and he has to wait and there's nothing he can do. And the bottom line is he has to establish his heart. He has to trust in God. He has to take courage. He has to be confident. He has to believe. You know, I mean, even if it does fail, I have to believe that God will take care of me and my family. I don't know what's going to happen. Either the rains or the humidity or the wind or the bugs or the whatever, but I'm going to have to believe God. One guy told me a story how his crops failed and it was just a miserable blah, 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 blah year, but they cut them all down and turned them into silage and the next year his, you know, his cattle did outstanding because they had all this incredible food and it made up for it twice as much. At the end of the day, one way or another, you got to believe that God is good. You have to trust in the judge. You have to believe that his coming will make a difference. And that's what it means to establish your heart. Some people read through this passage and initially when you look at it, here's a slide uh, of James 5.8. It says, be patient, establish your hearts. You're like, what in the world does it mean to establish my heart? I mean, somebody's telling me about the pictures of heart surgery, and they're like, I don't even want to see that. You know, that's gross. What do you mean establish my heart? Well, look, here's how you figure it out. In Scripture, if you don't know what it means, just look to another spot that explains it a little more. And here's an example of that. First Thessalonians 3, 11 through 13 says this. Now, may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus Christ Direct our way to you, and may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all, as we do for you. So that, why? So that he may establish your hearts. 
What does it mean to establish your hearts? Well, it's to be blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the, oh, at the coming of the Lord Jesus with all his saints. Therefore, beloved, since you are, oh, waiting, just like the farmer for these, be diligent and be found in him without spot or blemish. Hear all those words again, and basically what we see is this. When you read around this phrase to establish your hearts, what it means is not some just, you know, frou-frou, fluffy thing, but there are specific things the Bible says. When you establish your hearts, this is what it means. And here they are. It's to be blameless. It's to be holy. It's to be diligent. It's to be without spot or blemish. You're like the virgins waiting for the bridegroom to come. You are anticipating the coming of Christ. And as a result, you're living in such a way now because of the future so as to Act, believe, think, feel certain ways today. Now, I know that's a bit of a challenge because we read this and say, well, that sounds good from the pulpit and from the stage, Pastor Jeremy. Blameless, holy, perfect, diligent. Who's that, right? I mean, how far can I really get in this life? Look at 1 Thessalonians 5.13 and look how they say it. He says, now may the God of peace sanctify you completely. That means absolute perfection. May he get you there to the perfect spot. Anybody there? (laughs) Not me. I'm up here, but I ain't there. That's for sure. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless. Oh, at the coming of our Lord Jesus. But I can't. I'll never get there. I'm not there today. Therefore, I won't, right? Wait a minute. What does the Bible say? Is it today that determines tomorrow or tomorrow that determines today? If it's today that determines tomorrow, you're right. You won't. You can't. You're not good enough. Neither am I. But if we do know someone who's good enough, and if in fact he's powerful enough, and in fact he has promised to us, and if in fact... He's coming to make sure that it will happen, then perhaps there's a chance that tomorrow will actually determine the outcome of today. Is that possible? I think so. Because as 1 Thessalonians 5.23 says, may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely when at the coming of our Lord Jesus, what does verse 24 say? That he who calls you is faithful, and he will surely do it. So it's not on you. You don't determine the future. God does. And that's where your assurance and your hope and your encouragement lie. If it's all on us, then you're right. Good luck. No chance. But if it's on him, then we're all good. And what I think and feel and do changes today. In other words, God's promise for tomorrow gives hope for today. Because of the guaranteed future, I can make it through the uncertain present. Because of the perfect future, I can negotiate the messy present. Tomorrow determines today. 
Now, that's a, I, that's a major th- shift in my thinking. I hope it's a shift in yours, too. And I know as I'm preparing this sermon this week that I'm supposed to change with the text and grow and stuff like that. But I come to Saturday, and I'm like, dur, dur, dur. <laughs> you know, the day before the sermon, I practically forget what I'm going to preach. It's the next day. And what happens is you grow up thinking a certain way and your thoughts make you feel a certain way. And then those feelings cause you to behave a certain way. And you establish this pattern and after a while it becomes your personality and your personality is such you're like, hey, it's just me. And you don't realize it's actually not just you. It's a coping mechanism you use to deal with everything. And you got to get beyond that and go to the root of the issue, which is the devil lying to you, saying, look, you're going to mess it up and you're going to screw it up and it's all on you. That's the devil's lies. He's accusing you and that is his job. He is the diabolo. He is the accusation thrower. That's his whole purpose in life is to make you feel miserable. And you got to go back to those thoughts and say, where did they come from? No, is that true or not? Does that match what Scripture says? Is it all on me? No, it's on Christ. Does Christ win or lose? He wins, so I'm in him, and therefore victory. What am I grumping about? Jesus wins. Yeah, I messed up, but if I'm honest about it, I can confess it, and his blood covers it, and we're okay. Amen. And that's the truth, but the devil wants to say to you, no, it's not, you're done for. You failed. You made a mess. It's over. Today determines tomorrow. And the Bible says to you, not a chance. Tomorrow determines today. And Jesus won, and you're in him, so it's okay. So when you encounter trials and suffering and pain and discouragement and failure, James says, count it all joy. (laughs) You say, how can that be? Because we know through this process, God will accomplish his purpose. Because tomorrow determines today. James chapter 5 verse 8 then describes it like this. It says, what does it mean? Take courage for the coming of the Lord is near. 1 Thessalonians 5.23 says, look, or 24, he who calls you is faithful and he will surely do it. Colossians chapter 1 verses 9 and following says, Be strengthened with power according to his glorious might. Not according to your glorious might. For all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the future inheritance of the saints in light. Look, church, see how the farmer waits. See how patient they are. They are so patient. They wait for the fruit of the earth until the rain comes. You also, in the same way, establish your hearts and be patient. For the coming of the Lord is at hand. God's promises for tomorrow give us hope for today. What's coming then determines what we do now. Tomorrow determines today. Be patient. So I think what you could do then is perhaps reread this text and it could say, you also be patient in your cancer, in your uncertainty, in your marriage, in your divorce, in your loneliness, in your job loss, in your depression, in your acceptance, in your love. Why? Because the coming of the Lord is at hand. Be patient. Jesus is coming. Everything's going to be okay.
That's the farmer. Then there's also a couple other examples, and I think I'm, I'm going to move through them pretty quick, but I want to tell you a little bit about Elijah. Because he reminds me of me, not because I can call fire down from heaven, but because I have major crashes after spiritual highs. <laughs> and what happens is this, in 1 Kings 18 and 19, so that there's the farmer, and now here's the prophet. It says, look, be patient like the prophet. And what's going on in this story is pretty wild. Here's Elijah, and he's sent to deliver a message to Ahab and Jezebel. Don't ever name your kids that, by the way. You don't hear a lot of Jezebels running around, do you? There's a reason. 1 Kings 18 and 19, read that and you'll know why, okay? So Ahab's kind of like the wimpy husband and he's there and uh, Elijah goes and confronts him and says, look, you, ugh, you're just, ugh. And he explains to him in no uncertain terms the difference between a real God and a dead God. And they get into it a little bit. And he's like, all right, let's have a contest. We'll just, you know, fill up the altar you're, you call on your God, see if he lights it. I'll call on my God, see if he lights it. You know, and the prophets of Baal, they cut themselves. They do all this, you know, yada, yada. And Elijah is just taunting him. He's like, come on. <laughs> What's up? Maybe he's going to the bathroom. You know, <laughs> where is he at? He can't hear you. Perhaps the door is closed and the fan's on. And, you know, he's taking care of business. Where is he at? You look, it's there. I'm not making this up. <laughs> Elijah taunts him in such a way in 1, Corinthians, or 1 Kings 18. He's going after him. And eventually he gets to the point where they're like, okay, you're right. He's not lighting it. Elijah says, okay, let's, let's just play around with this a little bit more. How about some water? <laughs> Pour a little more. Uh, do it again. Do it again. Do it again. Until the whole thing is soaked and covered with water and the trench around it is flowing and it is sopping wet. And then he's like, ha now watch this. <laughs> Booyah! And lightning and fire comes down from heaven. The thing is torched. And he's like, yeah! And then the prophets of Baal are running and he grabs his guys like, kill them! <laughs> kill them all! And he slaughters 450 prophets. Makes a mockery of Baal. Blows them to smithereens, literally. Amazing story. Beautiful. Then the next day, you know what he's doing? He's like, nobody likes me. Everybody hates me. Think I'll go eat some worms. You know, he's miserable. Why? Because Ahab ran back and told his mama, not really his mama, but his wife, said, Jezebel, look what this bad prophet did. She's like, don't you worry. I'll kill him. I'll get him. I'll get him. And mama comes after him. That's when he's really afraid. And he runs and he runs and he hides in a cave. And eventually God comes to him. This is kind of the way I feel on Sunday nights, by the way. You know, it's like a great Sunday morning, and then at the end of the day, <laughs> well, it's this crash after this mountain, mo mountaintop experience, and there's a prophet just weeping and whining and crying. All of a sudden, God comes, and he brings a big wind, and God's not in the wind. A big thunder, God's not in the thunder. Big earthquake, God's not in the earthquake. And then there's this still, small, quiet little voice. It's like, Elijah, what are you doing? What are you thinking? What are you feeling? Have you established your heart? You were pretty good right before that contest, but now you let it go. What happened, Elijah? Do you forget who's in control here? <laughs> Do you remember what just happened? I got all kinds of resources left. Don't worry about them. Trust in me. Trust in me. Establish your heart. What I love about that, so beautiful too, is God doesn't come and just slap Elijah around or anything like that. He doesn't castigate him for his failure. He doesn't say, you lousy prophet, you failed. You're ridiculous. 
Instead, in gentleness and compassion and in mercy, according to his purpose, his good purposes, for he is a merciful and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love. He restores his prophet just like he's restoring his people. Why? For he who calls you is faithful and he will surely do it. Doesn't depend on you. Doesn't depend on me. It depends on God. And if that is the case, then everything's okay. If Jesus has truly risen from the dead. If he really did, everything's okay. If not, we're in trouble. But if so, it's okay. Then even in death, we say, where is thy sting? The farmer, the prophets, and Job. And Job, I'm not going to go through in detail because we're out of time. But basically it's this. James says, you have heard of the steadfastness of Job and have seen the purposes of the Lord. And what is the purpose? How the Lord is compassionate and merciful. Romans 8, 28, a verse we like to quote a lot, actually comes to the forefront now with those very words. In the life of Job, Job trusted God because he understood his purpose. In the life of you and me, in the life of Midland Free, we understand and believe in God because we know that those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Keyword, purpose. God is accomplishing his purpose. He who calls you is faithful. He's going to do it. It's not dependent on you. It's not dependent on me. Tomorrow determines today and not the other way around. See how the Lord is the gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love. Be patient, therefore, until the coming of the Lord. Midland free, be patient. See the farmer, see the prophets, see Job. You also then, you, be patient. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand and you have seen the purposes of God. Father, we thank you for your patience with us. We are sinful and desperately wicked. Our hearts go every which way and only you know. We pray, God, at the end of the day, that your grace and your compassion would be with us and that the joy and the hope that we have for the future, for tomorrow, for the coming of Christ, will overrule everything else in our life right now to such an extent that every thought, every feeling, and every action will be controlled by him. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.